during the summit we will have difficult discussions but I count on the political courage. I think that now it's time to act, now it's time to decide and I hope that it will be possible for everybody around the table to take a step in the direction of a decision. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Council President Charles Michel looking ahead to this week's big EU summit. Starting on Friday, leaders will try to reach agreement on plans to spend some 1.8 trillion euros on the EU budget and a recovery fund to revive the economy from the coronavirus crisis. It won't be summitry as usual due to the virus. Reporters are not allowed into the building and leaders' delegations will be severely reduced. But we'll still be covering it every step of the way on politico.eu and we'll preview the summit in a moment. We'll also bring you a special extra edition of the podcast if a deal is reached. And later in this episode, our guest will be politics professor Marlene Vint of the University of Copenhagen. She's just published a new book called The Tribalization of Europe, and we'll discover what she means by that and what she says needs to happen to make sure the EU thrives. But first, let's look ahead to the summit and discuss the implications of the presidential election in Poland with our pan-European podcast panel. So Reem's in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. Matt's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Guten Tag. And joining us today with me here in Brussels is Lily Beyer, our specialist reporter on the EU budget and, of course, now the recovery fund. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So listen, let's um, start with you, Lily, because you have to jump to an interview uh, very soon. What do you think are the big sticking points ahead of the summit? We're recording uh, just less than a couple of days before leaders uh, gather here in Brussels to try and reach an agreement uh, in person on the recovery fund and the budget. Where do you see the kind of the big fault lines? Right now, there are two main sticking points. The first thing is the size of the overall package. So Charles Michel has proposed a long-term EU budget of 1.074 trillion and a recovery fund of 750 billion. But for a group of frugal countries, including the Netherlands, Austria, and even Finland, uh, this is way too big. Uh, so one issue will be how to reduce the size slightly to make it appealing to these countries so they can come on board. And the second thing is the governance of this new, brand new recovery fund, because some countries, and especially the Netherlands, um, they want more supervision over the kinds of reforms that would be linked to this funding. And they want to make sure that they sign off on these reforms before money is doled out, especially to southern countries like Italy. Right. And um, are there any other kind of big um, sort of bones of contention or have some things been kind of cleared away by the work that Charles Michel and others have done in the in the lead up to this? Um, there are still several other issues. For example, the rule of law, uh, whether um, rule of law criteria will be linked to the distribution of EU funding. This is something that Hungary and Poland are really resisting and some countries in the West like the Netherlands, are pushing for and have been pushing for for two years now. Um, but it does look like the rule of law link might be watered down in an effort to prevent Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban from vetoing the entire deal. 
I'm just really struck by the fact that, you know, just a couple of months ago, talking about uh, a recovery plan, an emergency recovery plan that meant taking on common debt, uh, you know, was completely a non-starter. People thought we would be crazy if we were saying it. And it just seems like now that's sort of an accepted thing. And we're just talking about obviously details and trying to find a compromise. And that to me strikes me as quite a huge leap forward. Is that also the feeling where you're standing? I think we saw a huge turn of events and some governments were actually shocked when they saw uh, Berlin and especially uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel backing a deal um, that would see the EU essentially raise money together on the markets and then distribute that money as grants. What we've been hearing is that the reason for this turn of events is that uh, leaders in Paris and Berlin realized how deep this crisis is and how unprecedented for the EU. And that's when they decided that they have to do something big in order to keep the union together. Right. And we've discussed that a bit on the on the podcast, Matt, in particular, you know, the, the German angle here being partly about, you know, keeping the EU together and also how important that was for the German economy. So this is not, you know, just altruism from the German point of view, right? Yeah, def- def- definitely not. I think there's a lot of self-interest on on everyone's part here. And, and, and that's why I'm wondering also, Lily, what do you think it would take to get the Dutch on board here? Because they, they do seem to be the linchpin in many ways. And it seems like Ruta's government uh, might not survive if, if he goes forward with this, no matter what the compromise is. I think the key thing here is that Mark Rutte has to go home with a huge set of gifts from the EU. So, for example, a big rebate, um, a concession on the amount of customs duties that the Netherlands gets to keep that comes uh, into their ports. Usually uh, the bulk goes into the EU budget. There's a negotiation over how much of that they can keep in their pockets, um, and a series of other concessions, especially when it comes to reforms in the South. So I think Rutte has to go home and say, this was what the EU wanted, but I got them to improve the offer dramatically. I'm a good negotiator, and we got X, Y uh, from the bloc. Right, and that may well be. And Lily will know actually even better how the how the Dutch are going to uh, play this because she's about to go off and interview the Dutch foreign minister. But I think the other thing, Lily, I would say is um, we have a piece going up on the website uh, by the time people listen to the podcast, which is about how the whole plan came about with some real inside information. So that's a piece from uh, David Herzenhorn and Lily, and uh, I know Reem and Matt also contributed. So something to recommend for our listeners. So Lily has just made her escape so that she can do that interview and we can continue. Um, The word governance has kind of come to the fore, which I think is a bit of a throwback, Matt, right, to some of the some of the talk around the previous bailouts and that kind of thing in terms of how this should be supervised. How big an issue do you think that is now? Do we think that the, you know, the Germans have maybe an, an extra compromise up their sleeve on that one? Well, I think this is something that they'll throw into the mix, you know, to try and, and get this over the line. It's, you know, look, it's, it's going to be a muddle at the end of the day. These things always are. And I think it's unfortunate in this case because there's all of this focus on the timing. Will it happen this weekend or are they going to need to come back in August? I, I think what happens, though, is that it diverts attention from a more fundamental issue, which is, is this really going to work? Is this enough? And I think you know, it probably is not going to be enough if you listen to economists and people who understand these things uh, better 
than myself and, and most other journalists. So I, I, I think you're going to end up in a place here with a classic EU fudge on a lot of these issues. So in, in the long term, I think people might look back at this and say, well, this this was a significant symbolic move. But you know, at the end of the day, it really didn't solve these underlying issues. And if you look at the trajectory of the economy in Italy in particular, you know, you have to have serious doubts, I think, about, uh, you know, how much help this is going to be. I just want to say, it's just listening to Matt, I feel like, are we truly poo-pooing 500 billion euros in, in like, subsidies? I mean, I get what yeah, you're saying. Well, yeah, but if you put it into perspective, you know, Germany alone, just for Germany, the, the Bundestag in Germany has approved over a trillion, I think over 1.2 trillion euros, just for the German Republic. And here we're talking about, you know, 500 billion for a much larger area, right? I don't think anyone who's working on this recovery plan is saying this is the end all be all. This is going to be the only kind of thing that will help save the economy. But I mean, I just think that for a lot of people who might be listening to us just saying, you know, are we are you trying to say that perhaps there shouldn't be this money? I mean, it's already such a grind to get this money. Well, no, I'm trying to say that they need to have a reality check about the you know effects that it's going to have. And, and you know, w- w- is it really going to solve you know, the crisis in a place like Italy. And I think you have to, you know, look at that closely. And, and you know, if, if you do, you might come to the conclusion that it won't. But I don't um, think it's their pretense to say it's going to solve it. I think they're saying this is going to help it sort of get to a place that isn't as bad. That's the question. The question is how much yeah. it helps, how much it helps and how quickly. Uh, let me just move to, to one thing which um, is related and is quite pertinent, really, which is obviously at the weekend we saw uh, a narrow win for Andrzej Duda, uh, the uh, president of Poland, won a second term, very close vote. Uh, as we know, he's from the, the ruling, the governing law and justice party, peace, and that means that they really control the main levers of power in Poland for at least the next few years. And I think this poses a a couple of questions, you know, also for Poland and the Polish government in terms of how it wants to now uh, shape its relations with the European Union, also for the European Union itself, how it wants to, um, you know, deal with the fact that really it's pretty clear where the power is going to lie in Poland for the years ahead. Does it want to continue, particularly the Commission, to push this Article 7 uh, disciplinary procedure or is that quietly dropped? I mean, to be honest, it's not going anywhere anyway. It's kind of stuck in the Council where uh, member countries can't agree what to do about it. But it just does kind of set the it kind of sets the direction of travel for the next few years. We kind of know where Poland's going. And then tied in with that is the whole question of rule of law, um, which we mentioned with Lily at the start and the question of how much that should be tied to EU funds. So I wonder, Matt, uh, you follow uh, Poland quite closely. What you make of, of where things might go from here with, with Poland and how the EU approaches the rule of law in Poland? Well, I think it's been something of a reality check for the EU and uh, for a lot of people who've been covering this on the ground uh, in Warsaw. There was a lot of giddiness, I think, amongst sort of Western liberals in the run up to the second round thinking, you know, that Duda would would lose. Uh, and, and Duda still uh, won. So it's, it's, it's a reminder of, of just how strong peace is there, that the system is not going to change anytime soon. 
and that Europe basically has no choice but to accept the fact that this is the government in Poland. And, um, you know, it's it's pretty pointless, as you said, to continue to pursue uh, something like the Article 7 procedure there. And so you have a dynamic where Hungary and Poland will protect one another. Uh, and I think the commission has to ask itself, well, what does it gain if it continues to kind of flog this horse? Uh, it, it might kind of, you know, show that it's true to its its principles. But as a practical matter, it's only going to continue to create a lot of tension, I think, within uh, the EU Council. So I would expect maybe a, a more uh, pragmatic approach in in the wake of, of this. So, you know, I think given everything else that's going on in Europe and the world uh, now, this is you know, this is a fight maybe that the EU doesn't need to wage at the moment. Right. And you'll hear an alternative view from our uh, guest, Marlene Wildt, uh, professor of politics from the University of Copenhagen, who argues very strongly that the EU needs to actually get much tougher on this link between values and uh, EU cash, if you like. But as you say, it feels like that's getting kind of pushed into the distance. And I wonder, Dream, whether uh, also the French have kind of signaled that that's a secondary concern at the moment. I mean, I think there's a prioritization. Their first red line, if I could put it that way, is the 500 billion in actual grants. Uh, but rule of law is very important. It was actually mentioned by the Elysee official today as one of sort of the top four most sensitive issues that are going to come up during this uh, this uh, this summit, and as one that the you know they're the French are are going to sort of have a a, a tough position on as tough as the the Dutch. Um, I think yes, there is a, a pragmatic uh, sort of um, argument to be made, which Matt has done, but I don't think that leaders are necessarily all willing to sort of put that aside as quickly, especially since it was really interesting watching this Polish uh, election. Yes, Duda won, but it was a very, very close call. And keep in mind that his opponent got into the race pretty late. Um, and it just makes you think, like, given everything Duda has done, uh, you know, it's just interesting that it, it came down to the wire. And I think that's something, you know, to, to take into consideration and not to sort of just give in to, you know, it's Duda's country, he can do whatever he wants in it. And, you know, rule of law is sort of a forsaken well, thing. Yeah. That's the challenge, obviously, isn't it? Because it was it was a close vote, and also uh, what, what a lot of people will tell you is that uh, Duda had huge advantages, including with the media, of where course. the state media, you know, by by all accounts, is very much a mouthpiece of of the ruling party. But I think Matt's point is that's the system; it's not going to change, and so the EU has to figure out how it kind of. Deals yeah, but with doesn't that. the EU have to also find a way to? I mean, obviously, without sort of interfering in the internal affairs of a sovereign nation, but isn't isn't the the con, you know the whole point of being part of the EU is that eventually, sort of, it provides a framework in order to push systems to become more democratic. I mean, that's that's the carrot that they yeah, use, right? I think that's the trouble. What nobody envisaged was that once that had been done, once right. you kind of tick the boxes to get in and continue to do that for a few years, what should happen if, if you, you roll then back stop to tick the boxes? Yeah. Okay. As usual, we have talked for too long and Christina is going to have to edit it all into a much more digestible chunk. So we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, before our next guest, an apology. One of our listeners wrote in with some very nice feedback, but also with a gripe. He complained that we, let's be honest, I, made a hash of pronouncing the name of last week's guest. 
Now, let me assure you, uh, particularly as someone who studied languages, that we do take these things seriously. We often call on reporters in our very international newsroom to help with pronunciations. That's a bit more difficult when the newsroom is mainly virtual at the moment, but that's no excuse. So, to make amends, we asked our listener, Alex Luta, to share the proper way to pronounce last week's guest, the first European public prosecutor. Laura Kodruza Kovesi. So, there you have it, with apologies to the prosecutor. And thanks to Alex for the feedback. We're always happy to hear from you. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Now, let's get to this week's guest. And to avoid any more problems, I asked her to start by pronouncing her own name. My name is Marlene Wind. Marlene Wind. Okay, yes. that's roughly how I yes, would have said yes. it. Yes, But I might have gone for Marlena, so it's good to know. And you're a professor of politics yes. at the University of yeah. Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're here partly because uh, you've just published a new book called The Tribalization of Europe. Can you just try and sum up in a nutshell what you mean by that? Well, the book is really about how a lot of not only European nations, but also regions, uh, in my opinion, have pulled up the drawbridge uh, in the past five, ten years. We have seen this phenomenon with, uh, of course, most obviously, I would say, I would say uh, Brexit. Uh, I also mentioned Trump because I think it's the same kind of logic that you see there using culture as as kind of... Uh, the way you sort of mobilize yourself and and argue for your uh, distinctiveness. Mm. So it's kind um, of identity politics? It's identity politics, but not in the American sense that we read about every day in the newspapers. It's maybe a little bit more a an overlooked, overseen uh, kind of identity politics, using culture, identity as an argument in itself. Uh, so, so it was really, I think, I was really triggered by, by not only Brexit, but also what's happening uh, and has been happening in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, where I think we see, uh, we see the same uh, and have been seeing for a long time without really doing anything about it, without discussing it much. Right now, it's, a, it's much more on the agenda because of the COVID crisis and all that. So people have started to say, oh, what's going on with democracy in these places? Uh, but I think that when I wrote the book, at least, it was really not that kind of identity politics people were talking about. And actually, if I can just put in a small anecdote, the real, real, real reason I wrote it was that Karl Puttermann, who was the Catalan independence, came to Copenhagen. And that was the first public talk he wanted to speak at Copenhagen University. Mm. So another right, and and so I guess one of the things that issues at issue there was the Catalan independence movement uh, would describe itself as a movement for self de- determination, which is a right that uh, you know peoples should have. But then on the other side, you have a very and and it's it's a very passionate and strongly held movement. And similarly, on the other side, you have the Spanish state saying no way. So. I wonder why you put the Catalan independence movement, uh, how you would see them connecting with Brexit, Trump and, you know, the nationalism that we see in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. You know, do they all fit together? In your yeah, in, they I think they do, because uh, what I have studied in the book is is um, the demagogy they are using. So so I'm interested in, 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 in tribalization. And the way I define it is that it's an activist um urge to separate yourself from others so so appealing to the tribe appealing to uh, to to culture to to everything that is beyond the political and if you look at it in that 
from that dimension, uh, I think you see a lot of similarities between uh, different types of of, of uh, you know regional uh, movements as well as, as as national movements. So I'm I'm really interested in this idea that that what is it that makes these types of tribal demagogues argue the way they do in terms of not being able to sort of accommodate a broader does the kind of, of demagoguery go hand in hand? Yeah. Because, of course, you can have nationalism uh, and national identity um, and still respect, you know, the rule of law, democratic institutions. Sure, absolutely. But and, you think in I these would, cases and, and exactly, and that's what I'm saying. I have a whole chapter on, you know, identity building and, uh, you know, it was it was never necessarily anything having to do with not being able to live together with others. But in this extreme version that I think we are seeing today, we actually have this kind of, of cynical, because and a lot of these people, even Boris Johnson, you know, he had this dime, uh, am I a Brexiteer or am I uh, for for Europe? So this, this cynicism uh, is also something that I attach to, uh, to to tribalization. But I wonder also, isn't there a kind of tribalism on the other side? You know, perhaps, you know, the Remainers in the UK, kind of a tribe, you know, they also had their kind of cultural touch points. Is that where we've got where even the people who may look kind of, uh, you know, aghast at the populists and, the, you know, the people on the right haven't realised that they've kind of become a tribe as well. Well, I think that that's the, the, the actually the point I'm trying to make when I say defending the liberal values uh, in my book, uh, which is the, the subtitle, that uh, no, we, we really have to be careful there. Uh, it's not about another global tribe or something like that. It's really saying we need to, to defend the basic rules of the game in order to be able to live together. I'm not, you know, speaking for federalism or any kind of European big uh, fat identity. I'm, I'm, I'm quite the opposite, saying that as a minimum, if we don't defend the right to disagree, the right to have a free press, the right to, to or the demand that everyone who, sh- who wants to be part of this club can tolerate people with another uh, point of view and another uh, ethnicity. I mean, where are we? Where, is, where are the values that we built uh, after the Second World War? So, so I really think that, that we, are, uh, we have to be incredibly conscientious about this, that we should not jump on, on the same wagon, just in the opposite direction. I think that what we have forgotten, you know, Politicians started, you know, a few years back to, to withdraw powers and wanting to undermine the court and saying, oh, we don't trust international courts, we don't trust uh, supranational institutions. Well, who's dismantling international uh, rule of law today uh, and the international liberal order? That's, that's us. It starts at home, as I say in my book, uh, to, to a large degree. It's not just Orban, it's not just Brexiteers, it's actually happening even in well-consolidated democracies. Right, which kind of brings us on to the, the, the kind of obvious next question, and it's particularly timely. We are recording uh, the day after it looks like Andrzej Duda has won uh, a second term as Polish president, which means the Law and Justice Party really contain, you know, uh, holds all the main levers of power in Poland and will continue to do so for a number of years at least. So that's then the question, what do European institutions do? What does the EU do? We know that the European Union, the Commission has triggered the Article 7 procedure against Poland, which is on paper about the most serious thing it can do. Uh, this happened a number of years ago. It has gone, you know, let's be honest, precisely nowhere. So what can EU institutions do? What should they do in, in your opinion? What should EU member governments be doing 
if this trend is as is as dangerous as you see it. Yeah, I'm 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 really really disappointed with uh, with the EU. A lot of people are surprised by that. Also, I think the book is actually quite critical of the EU because of this. We have completely lost track of our own compass in in Europe, and I think political leaders are not understanding how this may take us, what path this may take us down to, uh, if if they don't take this 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 set challenge seriously. Now you ask me what should we do? What we should do is simply to say no money to any country in Europe, not just to this and that and this country, but no money to any country that does not sign up to the EPO, that does not... Uh, which is uh, the European Public Prosecutor, which, which our the, listeners will know, because we... <laughs> I'm had, sure your listeners know that. <laughs> we had the prosecutor uh, on last week. Yeah, and, and also live up to the to the basic standards of, of rule of law, free press, uh, free free courts, uh, independent courts. I mean, and, and I really, really don't say that this should be pinpointing any specific country. This should be a common, you know, basic... A thing for anyone wanting to dig into taxpayers' money in Europe. So, so we are. I think it's very, very dangerous, and that's why I'm. I'm also urging uh, liberal voices to speak up. And and what I have seen, uh, I think, over the past ten years is that fewer and fewer, in particular after Trump and Brexit, are too timid to speak up. So, so my my last two chapters are really saying if we don't speak up. Uh, I mean, we are we are complicit in this development, and uh, and also the the political leaders are to a large extent uh, undermining uh, the values and even the kind of the um, the foundation that Europe is is standing on. And there, my 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 final point is, of course, that if we want to pass on a democracy uh, to our children and grandchildren, I mean, how can we be sure when we don't even defend it ourselves that this will actually be possible? So, so, uh, so I think we we uh, we have to tell our our political leaders, and I really hope that Angela Merkel and 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 all the others, uh, when they are sitting around the table deciding about the budget and the recovery fund, that they are thinking about this. That um, I'm going to be increasingly eurosceptic, uh, and I certainly am not known for that for being that, but. I mean, if I if I'm going to support this pro- project also in the future, I, I need to see some results on on that aspect. Even though it's going to be hard, I'm not saying it's easy. On rule of law. On the rule of yeah. law. On protecting in, uh, minority rights. On uh, the idea that uh, money should go to the right people and not uh, into the oligarchs' pockets. And and I mean, uh, demand that they sign up to the EPO. I mean, how can this not be a requirement? when you want money from all of us. Uh, I simply don't understand it. I, it's beyond my comprehension. <laughs> are, you, are, you, you don't, are you optimistic or pessimistic? You don't sound too optimistic about all of this. It's a very pessimistic book in a way, but it's also a, a wake-up call in a sense. So, so I'm really hoping that by being pessimistic and by saying these things, I, I really hope that it will make uh, a lot of people aware uh, and also a lot of academics a bit more daring in terms of coming out of their ivory towers and and having opinions about things. So so that's also, um, you know, in a sense, it's a very activist uh, argument. So in that respect, I'm probably rather optimistic because I simply cannot just sit back and, and do nothing. Mm. Finally, while we have you here, um, <laughs> just can you give us sort of the, the, the brief version of, obviously we're, we're coming up to that summit, we're trying to understand the positions of the different countries. Uh, Denmark is part of this Frugal Four uh, group. Uh, help us explain why, uh, or help us understand why, why Denmark 
is part of that club. Mm. I think Denmark is is uh, in many ways a and the current government is is I think probably the most eurosceptic government we have had since we entered the EU. Uh, I'm not the only one saying that. But Denmark is a small trading nation and you know constantly looking at what's in it for us, what do we get out of it. So it's it's constantly the money. It's it's very much like the Dutch mm. looking at the balances. Uh, I I read in Financial Times, I think it was yeah, I don't know if I dare to say that on 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 um year, but he said Oh, that was actually a, a comment uh, in the thread after the that you know it, the only thing that gives uh, that gives the frugal force an orgasm is is to is to see a, a positive balance sheet. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know you can go in and look it up. It's not mm. it's not me. That's um, the kind of crude crude <laughs> stuff you expect from uh, the Financial Times. <laughs> you would never get that at Politico. <laughs> of course not. So then, what could what could help the Danish government to sell this back home? What could well, they kind of sell as well, a victory? Well, I mean, what Charles Michel has obviously given Denmark, I saw here the other day, he gives a bigger rebate, rebate right? Yeah. Paying them off, basically. Yeah. It's not very beautiful. <laughs> uh, and then he's scaling down on the on the rule of law mm. uh, to 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 get Orban on board, and um, I think it's. Uh, I'm not impressed uh, mm. with if that's what it ends Isn't up that with. That's sort of but, the art of a political course, compromise. I mean, yeah, uh, and that is of course what what my prime minister will go back home and say. Well, we got this bigger rebate. It's a great great victory for me. And then we had to accept grants instead of loans, or only not both both loans and grants, and and maybe uh, you know starting to pay them off earlier or something like that. Uh, but but of course she has to climb down from a tree and. Uh, and apparently she made the analysis that it was worth it. Um, but but I think if you look at the opinion polls in Denmark, uh, people are very, very positive about the EU. And in particular after Brexit, uh, there was this analysis uh, among a lot of media people in particular that, you know, Denmark would, would go in the same direction and go down the same path. And uh, But what actually happened was the opposite. But... Don't uh, uh, fool yourself because uh, it does not mean that Denmark wants to get rid of its opt-outs. Um, so in other words, it's kind of Denmark wants to keep the same kind of deal that Britain had, which ultimately proved not, which in a lot of people's minds was a kind of best of both worlds. You kind of opt into some of this stuff, yeah. but you don't have to go along with the euro and exactly. all of that. But what you mentioned, just one final thing, because I know you've written about it before, and it does kind of come... I mean, it's a kind of hard, hardy perennial of the European debate, right? Two-speed Europe, multi-speed. But that obviously is raised also by your book, which is the idea that you could have a core of countries who are fully signed up to the whole lot, the the values, if you like, and then a kind of outer core that's really mm-hmm. not so bothered about that. And that's how Europe develops. Is that the way we're, we're maybe heading? Where, we, you know, there's a kind of core Europe that signs up to the, the values you're defending in this book, and then there's a kind of outer ring, um, which is still part of the EU, but just not so fully mm. on board with all the, of that? The problem with that scenario is that uh, the internal market is actually also undermined by not living up to the values. Uh, so so I don't think that you can be part of a periphery not accepting the, the, the basic values. That's also why I argue in my book that the basic values are absolutely the minimum. I mean, it, the whole thing will start faltering and you will end up in a situation where the EU does not hang together. So, so no, I don't think we can, we can live with that situation that you have. Um, you, can, you can certainly have countries in the periphery who are not sitting at the 
table, the top table deciding about the future of Europe, but you cannot have those in the periphery not living up to the basic rules that makes the, the internal market work. And that's we are never going to let that happen because then I'm completely, you know... You're a skeptic? I would be outraged <laughs> and, and certainly skeptic. Well, uh, we've already talked for a long time, so we better <laughs> uh, leave it there. But Marlene, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. That was Marlene Vint talking about her book, The Tribalization of Europe. And that's all the time we have on this episode. We'd appreciate if you could take a minute to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you use. If you haven't already, please also click subscribe so we come to you automatically every time we release an episode. As mentioned, our next episode may be a special edition if, and that's a big if, EU leaders reach a deal on the budget and recovery package. If not, we'll be back with our usual weekly episode. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.